What do retailers try to do uh, that healthcare doesn't really leverage? Hello, and welcome to Hims Cast. I'm Susan Morse, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. We are speaking today with Mike Alkire, President and CEO of Premier. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Susan. It's great having you. And we're talking today about whether if you were running a hospital, what would you do? But I'm wondering first if you can give us a little background on Premier for anybody who doesn't know. Sure. So Premier is a healthcare performance improvement company. Uh, we work with about 4,400 hospitals, more than 250,000 other places of healthcare uh, to provide supply chain services, uh, operational services. Uh, we do quite a bit of co-management with our healthcare systems. Uh, we have a very, very large technology area uh, where we leverage machine learning, artificial intelligence uh, to help our healthcare systems drive performance improvement. And then we've got a few other ancillary businesses that we've innovated over the years. One, to help our healthcare systems work more closely uh, with employers. That's called Contigo. And then we built out a technology called Remitra, uh, which is all about e-invoicing and e-payables. And then we've got a life science practice that does some real-world evidence. But suffice it to say, uh, if it has an intersection with data and healthcare, uh, we probably uh, touch it in some form or fashion. Well, that probably touches upon every part of healthcare, I would imagine. It does. Yeah. Um, you advise hospitals and, and executives. What have you been advising them lately? Are you seeing any trend with that? Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so first, I think our healthcare systems are really struggling, obviously, still with labor, um, labor shortages, uh, high costs of labor. It's putting an incredible amount of pressure um, on the bottom line. Um, so we're spending an awful lot of time talking to them about, you know, labor extenders, for example, leveraging technology, if you will, uh, to help them do sort of ordinary, mundane, and administrative tasks. Uh, I talked a little bit about our Remitra offering. Uh, what Remitra does is all about e-invoicing and e-payables. Uh, once you implement that capability, uh, it actually helps reduce the cost of people who are searching down invoices that are inaccurate and those kinds of things. So I would tell you that technology plays an incredible role uh, to help our healthcare systems as they're sort of managing through this labor issue. In other words, to automate a lot of these mundane tasks? Absolutely. And a couple of other use cases where we do think that uh, clinical uh, use of clinical resources uh, lend themselves incredibly well to technology. Uh, one is on prior authorization. The other is as as appropriate, as the uh, healthcare systems are thinking about appropriately documenting. We can use machine learning and artificial intelligence now to look at the unstructured text of Epic and Cerner and Athena and really build out the algorithms, if you will, um, to do that kind of work as opposed to having clinicians doing chart reviews and looking at health status and those kinds of things. What's stopping them from doing that now? Um, uh, I, th I think number one is inertia. Um, I think people are comfortable with the way that, you know, healthcare is practiced today. Uh, number two, um, many of them don't have standardized electronic medical records. 
And if you're, you know, don't have that standard capability, it's really hard to leverage a technology set like machine learning or artificial intelligence to help get into that, um, you know, the creating those algorithms and reducing that labor cost. Um, so I would say those are probably two of the largest reasons. Um, we've been, you talked about AI. We've been hearing a lot about AI as well at HIMSS 23. And I just came back from a, another conference where it seems like AI is seen as the magic bullet to uh, help with the workforce issues. But Premier has uh, mentioned a holistic balance dashboard. What is that and how does it help hospitals? Yeah, so um, the holistic balance dashboard is really bringing together all the elements of hospital operation uh, and looking at them across you know, the various spectrums of quality and, and safety uh, and labor and supply chain, uh, and then being able to really identify what are those critical areas that need to be focused on from a healthcare system standpoint. Um, and so it's really all about bringing balance to managing a hospital. So what are the things that need to be periodically managed and, and um, uh, you know, where are those outliers that, that healthcare systems executives need to obviously pay more attention to. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you alluded to your first question and I wanted to circle back if you don't mind when you said, if I, you know, were um, running a hospital, what are some things that I, I might do? And I, I never really got around to that question because I got into AI and technology, but it's so interesting. I was on the phone today with a CEO of uh a major health system uh, in this country, more than $15 billion in, in uh, patient revenue. And we were talking about the area of consumerism. And I was using the example that my brother uh, went into two different competing uh, health systems recently. And he said, you know, one, I walk in, and my brother knows nothing about healthcare. And he goes, one, I walk in, and, you know, it's got brighter lights, it's clean, it's updated, and, you know, I felt, you know, pretty good. The other one I walked in and it was a little darker, you needed some painting and all those kinds of things. And and he said it just, it gave the allure or the illusion that this one might have been a better, higher quality system than the other. Uh, and and uh, I'm not saying that that was the case, but what I am saying is if I were running a healthcare system, I would really consider thinking about um, that whole notion of, of pulling all the way back and thinking about being a retailer. Like, what do retailers try to do uh, that healthcare doesn't really leverage? And, and this CEO and I were spending quite a bit of time on this today, probably uh, probably too much time. But we said, you know, it's really interesting. If you go into retail, the stores are well lit. It's you see all the products. It's it's. Uh, incredibly transparent what things cost and and how how the quality levels of the products are and all those kinds of things. And um, he said, you know, also they would never if if you're buying something, they would try to potentially have you buy something else and 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 know that you know they might make might make your experience even that much better. Um, and so I was just thinking about that. I I probably would lead with that kind of. Uh, initiative, uh, you know, besides all the important things of making sure that my healthcare system was incredibly high quality and had great safety and was incredibly transparent with the data, and then obviously was as efficient as possible so that we could, you know, differentiate not only on our 
quality and our um, uh, and our safety, but we could also differentiate on the value that we were creating for those those um, for the for the patients. And then finally, uh, and I talked a little bit about this. Um, I would try to, to embrace. You'd ask me this question. I'd try to embrace technology as much as I possibly could. What are the mundane tasks that if you were not in healthcare that you would you know obviously automate? And, and those would be tasks that I would really look to figure out ways to bring as much automation to the fore as possible. Does that include patient experience? Because what I just heard from a lot of hospital executives was the patients want to talk to a person. So here, hospitals are moving towards all this technology, chat, chat, GPT, to interact with patients. And the hospital executives are saying, when I call, don't give me a chat. I need to be able to interact with somebody. I need somebody who can hear me. And yet they're so stretched thin. This is how they're trying to manage the system. What do you advise on that And if you were running a hospital? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I think you've got age difference here. So first of all, I think folks in my age group are going to want to talk to a person and make sure that I get the questions answered that I want. And we're going to want to have access. And um, even though I'm in the you know older generation, I would tell you I'm still very much uh, interested in having virtual care when it makes sense, uh, if it saves me a trip, and if it's not something that I absolutely have to do. So um, in terms of leveraging technology itself, I think there are reasonable ways that we've got to leverage it, but in ways that I just talked about it. Now, I will tell you this, you know, you look at my kids, for example, um, they're going to figure out ways to get right through chat GPT real quick. And they've already done it, by the way, just so you know, they've already chat GPT'd all the way to get to wherever they're getting. Uh, they don't mind actually having a couple of, you know, rounds of dealing with, um, you know, something that's an automated bot to get to where they need to go as long as they can get to where they need to go. And and get their questions answered, you mean. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, and if that requires uh, a person on the other end, I think they're really comfortable with that. But I will tell you, they'd be just as comfortable with doing a chat G or an, uh, a bot, a uh, text bot. You know, I watch my kids do that, you know, today where they text something and if they have a clinician on the other end and, and it texts something back, as long as they feel as if they're being, um, responded to and answered and they're getting the right level of information, I think they just have a little bit different view than than folks that are, you know, typically, you know, close to yeah. your mind. And mine too. So I hear you there. Uh, and what what about going forward, Mike? What do you see? What are the new any new challenges that you see coming up? What about the economy? Are they talking a lot about that? Yeah, I I would tell you, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for healthcare um, is this the growing disparity uh, between access to capital between the payers and the providers? And um, it is something that, you know, Premier and myself have focused on over the last number of years. Um, I, I will tell you it, in the, that the, the, the gap is only increasing. And, and why is that? Why is that important? Well, let, let's just call out what the issues are. If you look at United Healthcare, and you look at you know Aetna, and you look at Cigna, and you look at Anthem. All these 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 commercial health plans are have hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap, so they can make investments. They can 
They can potentially cherry pick services. They can do a whole bunch of different things that a healthcare system that you know has access to maybe a billion, maybe a couple few billion, and at the best, maybe tens of billions of dollars of capital. And so I do think we have got to figure out ways that we bring that more in line, that that the access to capital has got to be more in line because I, I always say this, uh, you cannot have healthcare without a provider. I mean, you will always need providers. And so I just think that that's, that's something that um, we're going to have to really look at and make sure that we've figured out in the long term. The second thing is, I, and I continue to say this, and, and well, but there's actually three. The second is really supply chain, supply chain resiliency. You know, we, we learned a lot from what's hap- what happened during the pandemic, and we had way too much overexposure to China for a lot of medical devices and pharmaceuticals. I, I still don't think as a company, as a country, uh, as a country, um, I still don't think as a country, we are taking this serious enough. We have got to make sure uh, that we don't have too much um, supply all stuck with one country uh, because we saw what happens if a pandemic breaks out and that country gets hit with it, you know, we're going to be absolutely at the tail at the end of that dog, you know, dealing with all the issues associated with any supply outages and those kinds of things. Like, what what does that mean? Does that mean bringing manufacturing back into the U.S.? Are they doing this? Are you seeing it? You said... Yeah, so I will tell you, uh, fortunately, we are. So us, along with 16 of our house systems, Susan, you've teed up a great big softball for me. Uh, Us, (laughs) along with... 16 of our health systems invested in a domestic manufacturer of uh, masks in Arlington, Texas. We stood up the most automated isolation gown manufacturing facility in the world in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, we launched an incontinence factory uh, in um, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, we stood up a generic drug, manu- not stood up, we made an investment in a generic drug manufacturing capability in North Carolina. So yeah, we're taking it, incre- us and our healthcare systems are taking it incredibly serious. Um, we are also diversifying out of you know China and into other low labor cost countries of Southeast Asia, and we've got to continue to look at nearshore opportunities. So, what are the uh, you know the the capabilities that or the the products that we need to be thinking about manufacturing in Central America, for example, or Mexico, or or you know maybe in the the Caribbean? So, those are going to be things that. We're going to want to, you know, continue to evolve around and build out, but those those products are way too critical um, to not be able to have some some uh, real focus around it. And, and then you had asked me, you know, one other area that I, I was going to get to uh, in terms of the third issue was uh, supply chain. Oh, was labor? We've got to we've got to figure out ways to expedite uh, the. Um, training, if you will, the credentialing of both nurses, clinical nurses, as well as um, physicians. I, I do worry as the aging population continues to, you know, get older, uh, the needs on healthcare are going to be more. And, and I'm, I'm worried that we're not going to have enough, obviously, uh, uh, clinicians to take care of that population. So it is something that we're incredibly passionate about. I heard that, uh, uh- people wanting to train as nurses were turned away from schools because there's not enough people there to teach. So there, apparently that's an issue too. 
It is an issue, uh, but there are. I'm I'm actually personally working with the university. We've got a joint venture with uh, Providence and with um, Common Spirit, uh, where we're you know expanding uh, the ability for universities to take on uh, uh, more uh, hiring and or bringing in more more students and those kinds of things. Yes, teachers isn't it? Teachers are an issue, but um, that's just you know one of the few issues that I think we can get over quick more quickly. We've got to get after credentialing and, and, you know, the state credentialing stuff is something that we've got to bring some attention to because, you know, this, what you're credentialed as a nurse, you can go from one state to another, but it's, so it's kind of crazy. We don't have national standards. So it is something we've got to figure out. Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, we covered a lot in a very short time. Thanks. Thank you.